Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at successionstories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Jeff Ford is a partner at Grossman, Yannick & Ford, a regional certified public accounting and consulting firm serving Western Pennsylvania. Jeff is one of the three partners who founded the firm in 1990 and has extensive experience providing advisory and accounting services related to business acquisitions and sales. In this area, he has assisted numerous companies with due diligence, structuring transactions, transition consulting, and dispute resolution. Our focus today on the show is what it takes to get a business ready for a sale and how business owners can prepare for what might be one of the most important days of your life. When we talk about a transferable business, many times we're talking about risk. I asked Jeff which perceived risks are the most common and which ones can really derail the sell side process. Discover his answers in this episode, how to prepare for sell side diligence with Jeff Ford. Jeff Ford, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm excited for our conversation today. You have so much experience as an entrepreneur because you're a co-founder, which after 30 plus years, you might not look at yourself as an entrepreneur, more as the expert practitioner in your field. But nonetheless, you are a great resource for us, for our listeners, and I'm really excited to have you on today. Well, thank you, Laurie. I'm excited to be here as well. And I think that entrepreneurial spirit never leaves a person. If they have it, it stays with them forever. So uh, in spite of being the technical expert, certainly appreciate the perspective that the business owners have. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive in at that point. The purpose of today is to talk about your expertise. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your firm, Grossman, Yannick & Ford? Grossman, Yannick & Ford is a full-service CPA firm based in Western Pennsylvania. We are still independent. We are independent with localized decision-making. We're part of an international group of firms so that we can do things internationally or at larger scale than we would ordinarily be able to do if needed, but we focus here. We focus on about 70% of our work within a two-hour radius of Pittsburgh, and the remaining 30% is spread throughout the United States. We focus on the, the standard things you would expect from a CPA firm audits, reviews, tax compliance, and so on. But we also have a vibrant valuation group and a vibrant ERP solutions group. Across all of those groups, we bring a particular expertise with regard to business transactions, both buy side and sell side. And that has been true since our inception in 1990. 
We do everything from buy-side advisory, due diligence, working capital assessments and reports and so forth, to sell-side advice, which we'll be talking about today, and also dispute resolution and expert uh, testimony on purchase price situations. That's excellent. So the broad range of services across different industries and size of companies. And a lot of the folks in our audience are probably in the lower middle market. We may have some listeners that are part of larger corporations. But if we put ourselves in the chair of the business owner, I think this is going to be a really good conversation because the ethos of this show is to help people understand some of the concepts they may not be familiar with. A lot of folks who are looking to maybe sell their company one day, this is the only time they're going to go through this transaction. So they don't maybe know what it's all about yet. So I think to start there and say, great, let's focus on the business owner. And if they're going to sell their company, a key phase that they're going to be involved with is what we refer to as due diligence. And how do we prepare for that why don't you give us a little bit of a, of a scenario? What would be a typical scenario at this stage of a process when a business owner is contemplating a sale? I'll give a, a variety of scenarios for the lower middle market that you mentioned, focusing on a few million to maybe 50 to 75 million in transaction value, and maybe a handful to several hundred employees. The theories are the same when you get larger, it's just your deal team size and the amount of money you spend changes. And and it's a little bit more self-focused, a little more do it yourself with a smaller group of kind of a SWAT team, if you will, in the lower middle market. So oftentimes a business owner ponders selling for quite a long time before they prepare to sell. They're tempted and so forth. So in that scenario, they usually have some amount of time. They're usually thinking about it. They usually assemble the formation of a deal team or the early semblance of a deal team. And that would be a legal advisor, maybe an investment banker, maybe some advice from their accountant or other financial advisors. Then over time, they come up with a strategy to sell or exit. That's the orderly process. In another percentage of cases, it it comes up a little more suddenly. comes up suddenly because an event. I thought my child was going to be in the business, they changed their mind, an unexpected health problem. Or the happiest event is a stupid offer out of the blue. They got an offer well beyond what they ever thought. They didn't want to sell the business, but at 15 times EBITDA, they no longer want to keep the business. And in that case, in this rapid turnaround scenario, I think it's still important that the business owner think about preparation. You don't just dive in and start talking to your suitors. You, you assemble that deal team. You, you confer with attorneys, with financial advisors, accountants. You confer with investment bankers. Maybe you do run a process. So I think in either scenario, I'm saying preparation is helpful. Preparation is definitely helpful. A lot of times I get asked the question, well, how much time do I need? And then, of course, you flip it around to say, well, how much time do you have? And the longer time you have, the better off you'll be because you'll have more time to make changes and and create more options for yourself in the future. Is that what you see as well, Jeff? It is. And, and if you give me the liberty to be honest, direct, and respect, respectful, I will be direct. And most business owners are direct. So how long it takes to get ready for a transaction is analogous to asking someone, how long does it take to get into shape physically? Well, the answer is largely, how good a shape are you in before we start? And how much time and commitment will you put into the process? The less time and effort you'll put into the process or the worse shape you're in at the beginning, the longer it takes to be ready. The one thing I will assure you is if you're not ready, that will be brought to the light of day in the buy side due diligence by any reasonably capable suitor. That is a really interesting visual, which I now cannot get out of my head. (laughs) 
Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 1970s, ready for a transaction. He is, he is ready as opposed to someone else who's going on, you know, my thousand pound life. Well, and I think a lot of business owners do live that way. They do live ready to sell. Maybe it's certainly not a majority, but a lot do it. There is a book built to sell and, and, and very similar ones. And some business owners are just wired that way. They're just always, always ready. They're just particular. They might lean towards perfectionism. They have every I dotted, every T crossed. They have every legal document there. They've analyzed the, the, the SWOT analysis of their business from every angle. They're pretty close to ready. They're pretty close to ready. Now, I think the majority of business owners get consumed by working in the business, not on the business, as the old saying goes. And I think that they know that they should be doing a lot of things, but those things get wherever is further back behind the back burner. They get pushed so far back, they're just not tended to until it becomes something of an urgency. And I think right. that's who we're talking to more today. Right. So let's take the scenario of a company that is interested in selling, and maybe they have some suitors, and there's some letters of intent on the table. And one of those is chosen to move, move forward in a process where we want to get to a purchase agreement. So where does due diligence fall? Is it once the letter of intent is signed? Is it beyond that? And it's once we know for sure that there's a purchase agreement or is it somewhere in between? So I want to add a different perspective to that. You described, I think, ideally the timing for buy side due diligence. The buyer wants to be ready. And the buyer typically performs their buy side quality of earnings or financial due diligence during the exclusivity period that typically kicks off with a letter of intent being signed, agreed upon in some way. Conversely, well, and one does that on the buy side, it's time pressure, you have whatever 45, 60, 90 days of exclusivity, and it's really intense and highly focused. Conversely, on the sell side, I think it should be approached very differently than that. I think on the sell side, you want to be prepared well in advance of a letter of intent. I think you wanna walk through it, you wanna get things out in the open when you have more time. Ideally, I, I realize that the exit planning attorneys and others say start three years before you wanna sell, but from a financial diligence side, a sell side QOV, one year is fine. Six months we could work with, but if you're doing your sell side diligence when you have an LOI from a, a suitor, you really are scrambling. Your, your back is against the wall. You have given several advantages to the other team. That doesn't mean you can't win, but you've given several advantages to the other team. And I think our role, your deal team's role, is to help you to amass as many advantages on your side of the table as you can possibly and comfortably do. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stonyhill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. So you mentioned a Q of E. What does that stand for? Quality of earnings. What does that mean? Well, thanks, Lori. I probably should have said that at the time. But since we live in that world, quality of earnings or Q of E is really a financial assessment of a business in their situation. It usually involves several areas and involves an overview of the industry. And it's not to be confused with the information memorandum or the selling memorandum that the investment bankers do, but there's often some overlap. But the QOB goes a little bit deeper into the financial side, to be sure. It does talk about the industry, talks about strengths and weaknesses in the industry, talks about the purported strengths and weaknesses of the company at hand, in this case, the seller's company. 
typically focuses on things that would be of interest to a buyer. Think about what a buyer would be excited about or worried about. That's how the seller should be thinking. Most sellers underestimate the number of things a buyer would be worried about. A seller lives in there, they know the risk, they don't think about it, they've been comfortable with it for a decade or two. But if they were in the other chairs, they would be worried about a lot of things. They wanna know the story, but they also know that sellers tend to embellish the story. So now the sell side Q of E is really saying, how do we lay something out there to facilitate the buyer's process? How do we calm the buyer's fears? How do we tell them a concise, accurate story about what the, the financial situation of this company? If there are auditor reviewed statements, which are very helpful, we'll, we'll refer to them. They will not be incorporated in their entirety, but they will be referred to. We will have a section on working capital. What is the normal working capital that we might need to run this business. Sometimes it's cyclical. Sometimes it's kind of consistent. Sometimes there are significant concentrations of, of customers. Almost everybody thinks of the customer concentration. If 80% of your business is one customer, well, you better have a good story as to how you keep that customer. Well, similarly, the concentrations aren't always with the customer. If you require something for your secret sauce that's available only in one place, it's very important to tell that story. We did a sell side QV work probably four or five years ago. Now the years blend together. For a company, neat company, great product, great margin. Their margin was enhanced because of this minuscule, inexpensive item that really allowed them to achieve tolerances that excelled beyond their competition and really drove their premium margins, which in turn, of course, drove their premium price. That particular little widget was only available from one source. That would worry a buyer a great deal. We addressed that in the sales IQOV. We addressed the continuity arrangement. The legal team also helped with bringing calm to that situation and really averted a challenging conversation later. I want to be careful by going on and on, but you introduced a very, very important question. Other concentrations might be with who owns the sales relationships. Oftentimes it's a business owner. Are they transferable? Will those customers talk to the new owners? Will they be loyal or will they merely go to their second favorite provider? Sometimes, just sometimes, and my favorite, it's one we didn't see coming, but we stumbled upon it. We were deep in the due diligence process and the sales security, and we learned that of a group of salespeople, most of the salespeople had virtually no book of business. A super majority of the sales book of business was with one salesperson. Okay, well, one thing, so we'll just make sure they have a nice stay bonus, right? So we said, well, can we talk to that salesperson? Yeah, well, he only comes in a few days a week because he's over 75 years old. Well, uh -oh. <laughs> that would worry me a lot if I were a buyer. Right. Put yourself in the buyer's shoes. Now, the seller in this case didn't even think about it because they were used to dealing with this gentleman over the course of several decades. The salesperson was highly competent, highly dedicated, highly successful, and it wasn't even on their minds. So now putting ourselves in the side of the buyer, we basically... Uh, we didn't come up with it. We were part of the collaborative team that came up with the transition plan from the more experienced salesperson to what would happen. How do we transfer these relationships? And in this case, he, he was willing to commit several years to, to a buyer to also facilitate that transition. But I will say completely directly and bluntly that if that was not done ahead of time, if we were serving the buyer side, we would have made that a big, big deal. And we would have made sure that that informed significantly the negotiations of purchase price and other terms of that agreement. So Q of E really helps to get a number of items, concerns on the table, and also opportunities. This is why this is so excellent. 
this is why with a little bit more resources, we could do so many more things. And this is why we didn't have the resources or aren't inclined to invest them. I love that process. It's really in depth process for me and the way I work with clients. It's a little bit similar. It's not a quality of earnings, but it's the same intent, which is let's start early enough so that we're looking at the risks in your company so mm -hmm. that we have the time to address. And that's what you're saying is really key, especially if it's on the buy side, the clock is ticking and it's going to be reflected in the purchase price because they're going to discount on whatever risks they find and gets flagged it's going to represent a discount. So if you have time on your side to not only identify what potential pitfalls you might be facing, but then do something about it to make changes, whether it's on the sales side, whether it's on the infrastructure, the customer concentration risks, et cetera, right? Absolutely. And I will, I will say that if you have the perfect business, there's no need to do any of this, but I haven't met the perfect business yet. Many business owners are apt appropriately. They're proud of their business. They've worked hard. They're apt, much like a parent, to overstate the, the, the brilliance of their business, just like we overstate the athletic abilities of our children or the brilliance of our children. It's very, very similar, but almost every business has issues, has challenges. And we want to get those articulated. We want to get them on the table while we have time to do something. And that's really one of the key reasons you want to do a sell side QOV so much earlier in the process than a buy side. You want at least a year, because when these are identified, some of them will be false. Some of them will be the business owner and their team telling us financial people that you're just worriers and they'll show us why it's not a worry. We put that just like you'll put it in the information memorandum, the selling memorandum, we'll put in the Q of E. This is why this may look like a worry, but here's why it's not a worry. That's very, right. Very, very helpful. Now, when we move down that path, there are some things that are legitimate worries. Those concentrations, uh, expiration of patents, um, aging of equipment, a workforce that's all over a certain age with no ability to backfill it, any number of those things. And this gives us the opportunity to kind of grab the high ground, if you will. I do like sports and military analogies, so I hope you'll indulge that. This gives us the opportunity to grab the high ground and tell the story. This is the plan. And this is why the plan is not only plausible, but actually feasible. And here would be the investment to execute that plan. And oh, and by the way, if you don't buy it, that's what we're going to do anyway. And so we've essentially executed, if not an absolute fix and fix it before we sell it, we, we've outlined the roadmap to, to alleviate the financial pressure or financial detriment that would come from it. And we've taken away the emotion, the same issue that is highly emotional at the 11th hour, even if it's not emotional, I've worked with enough buyers over the years to know that even if it's small and they kind of shrug their shoulders when I bring it up, they and their legal team then say, you know, this sounds like a big deal. We're going to make it sound like a big deal when we get back to the meeting. And, and of course, my role is just to stay quiet in that regard and let them negotiate for their, for their purpose. But th this really shines a spotlight on the problems that we can't fix. If your business is normal, it's going to have a few weaknesses that are just not going to be fixed. Having those be surprises discovered by buy side diligence will cost you a lot of money. No doubt about it. One of the few absolutes. If we can get those on the table and, and have them desensitize ahead of time, it will go a long way. We acknowledge it. Yes, we will always, we will always have this weakness. It's inherent in what we do. Here's how we've overcome it. Here's how we may continue to. And sometimes the, the buyer's advisor or the seller's advisors, such as yourself, are very good at getting an auction rolling and telling people that you, we need you to acknowledge this ahead of time. Before you go through door number one, we need you to accept that 
80% of the businesses with one customer and we're confident that they stay. And you can really take a lot of those difficulties off the table and oftentimes um, increase your, your sales price by one or more turns of EBITDA, which can be a lot of money. A lot of money. It's counterintuitive to think that it could benefit you by putting some of the warts out front as opposed to hoping that no one discovers them. And it's a good encouragement to desensitize, address them up front, be proactive about it. Again, probably very against emotional sensibilities that we think, oh, wait a minute, you know, we don't want to put the negatives out there. But I liked how you positioned it. What I think is very important for business owners, and I think they, they understand when they put themselves in the shoes of a buyer buying their business, they actually know better than anybody where the real concerns are and really what to do about them. They've been living that story successfully for some period of time. Absolutely. So when you look at cash flow, sometimes in owner-led businesses, family businesses, or smaller companies, we need to make normalization adjustments to account for, and it can happen in larger companies too, of course, where there's one-time expenses or one-time revenues that would not get repeated. And so we don't want to necessarily count those in the net income and cash flow estimates. How does that come into play? What are the types of things that are watchouts? Well, we'll talk about both categories of normalization adjustments, those that improve the, the EBITDA and those that uh, take away from the EBITDA. And what most buyers are looking at would be negative adjustments to EBITDA one-time income that won't recur, as you mentioned, and they want to normalize that. They're usually looking at either a trailing 12 months EBITDA or maybe a three years or a business cycle if you're in a longer business cycle, cyclical business. But they want to know, what does this business look like going forward? And because none of us are very good at predicting the future, typically we use the past as the best proxy for the future in one of those scenarios. So what is the most normal? That's why they call it normalized. If the business has been very successful and the business owner has been taking, I don't know, several million dollars a year out as compensation, oh, and maybe paying their child another million a year to stay on the ski slope somewhere or anything nice that people come up with to do, that would be a normalization adjustment to improve the earnings. That would be saying, gee, let's add back those monies because if I own this business as an absentee owner or a new owner, I wouldn't pay myself that much. I wouldn't pay my child that much. What would I have to pay to replace the functions that I perform? That's an adjustment to EBITDA. You do the same thing with a one-time thing. Very popular ones of late would, of course, be the pandemic-related adjustments, whether it's the PPP or the ERC uh, or um, shutdowns or partial shutdowns or anything along those lines. But even pre-pandemic and certainly post-pandemic, people adjust their business. They might set, they might see, say, product line. They might move facilities, they might combine facilities. So if you shut down a facility and you combine facilities, there's typically an impact of that. What is it? How do you measure it? Put it out there. Take the high ground again, measure it. There's usually a range of fairness. And it's to the business owners, the seller's advantage to to grab the front of the conversation and have most parts of that range of fairness skew a little bit their way in making the argument as to why that um, normalization adjustment should land slightly to their advantage. Now recognize it'll be a discussion point, recognize that it can't be outside that range of fairness if you want to defend it, um, but they do go both ways. So we've talked compensation, we've talked one-time things, it can be any number of other things. Sometimes it's a commodity thing. If, if it, Sometimes you're merely normalizing for um, highly volatile supply situations. Anything that's going to change the run rate of the business should be looked at for normalization adjustments. 
Okay, that makes sense. Essentially, we've been talking a lot about risks mm-hmm. and a company that isn't transferable is inherently risky. Too dependent on the owner, some of the other reasons we mentioned earlier, right. they are the ones that are in charge of the sales process or there's really not well-established processes in general for product or services that can be transferred. And so that constitutes risk. What do you see are the most common risks that are derailing a transaction? Well, first I want to address the one that you moved to, and then I'll move to a couple of other common risks. The risk of being too owner-centric is huge. If a, if a business is 40, 50, 60 million dollars, it's not likely, but if it's 1 million to 10, 15, 20, 25, it could be very likely. I can't remember the name of the author who wrote a, a book called, I think it's Mindset. I can't remember her name, but she did a nice job. And she had a premise in there that some businesses, and you can also look at the E-Myth, E-Myth Revisited, about the craftsman versus a business. Some businesses, even large ones, can be a genius with a bunch of helpers. That's risk. That's the risk you just mentioned. Others are a business where the owner is part of the team. They've instilled um, capabilities and and authority and motivation in in a team. And and that has much less risk because if you're dependent upon the genius, uh, you can always get the helpers, right? Um, And the genius goes away, the value of the business degrades. That is uh, where many business owners start and why many actually hold off on the sale. Once they start going through a sales process, they realize we're not saleable because it's all about me. I'm the only value of this business. And oh, by the way, I've been taking all the value monetarily out of the business every year to support a lifestyle or my investments or whatever. And there's really nothing there. And it'll take longer to sell. The more that business owner has either built a true business where they have a team around them that can be sustained or transferred. Or by the way, oftentimes when we go through this process, not oftentimes, sometimes in in the analogy to what's on HDTV, sometimes they love it instead of listing it. Sometimes they'll look at it and say, you know, this really is a cool business. I really can't do this absentee. I really can't hire a professional manager. I really can't let my um, underperforming um, child or niece or nephew run it. And I really will just now keep it. That sometimes comes from this process because the business owner now sees it from the buyer's perspective. But it's it's a giant risk in, in how dependent the business is on the business owner. And that will oftentimes derail um, a sale of any financial consequence. Other risks tend to be contingent liabilities. What's lurking out there? Do you have defined benefit pension plans? Well, that scares nearly any buyer, as it should. Do you have environmental liabilities? Anything where the rules are changing and it might become very expensive very quickly or it will not go away or cannot be accurately predicted. You have other contingencies pending or threatened litigation. Everybody knows that might I be sued by somebody, but do you have a patent infringement issue? Do you have a patent that you can't hold on to or defend? Are you too small to, to actually defend your territory, your intellectual property? All of these things are, are big risks in a buyer's eyes. Warranty risk, you have a lot of rework lurking out there. Might you have a product liability risk that you don't know about yet? An incurred but not reported type of thing that will be stuck on it. Even if, even if the buyer's indemnified, the buyer knows it will impair their business going forward, but they might have to directly or indirectly pay for it. Most of the other risks come from um, contingent liabilities. And, and, and that, that includes um, uh, the fact that we've already talked about some of the other risks like a workforce mm-hmm. concentration and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So if you were gonna give a few pointers to a business owner who's listening, and say, these are the three things 
that they should really consider and take away from this conversation today? What would those be? I would say prepare in advance, prepare with the attitude of being the buyer of your business. Some business owners are actually pessimistic while I was arguing the other or giving an example of the other. Look at it objectively, dispassionately and objectively. Where are the risks in this business? Where are the opportunities? What would I need to clean up if I'm going to keep this thing? What would worry me if I were buying it? It's just address them and give yourself time. If you think you could clean this all up in six months, it's like most other things in life. It's going to take longer. If you think the hole is three feet deep, by the time you look more thoroughly, it's probably deeper. So just give yourself time. And, and also don't, don't skimp on the team. A, a good team will, go, will, will truly uh, pay for itself. Uh, so don't skimp on the team. Make sure they're capable. Make sure they're willing to give you proper share of mind so that you're not getting um, the, the short end of their attention span. And make sure that they are philosophically aligned with you. You want folks on your team who will do it your way and respect your wishes, uh, not, just, not just have their capabilities in their way. So I would say, be prepared, give yourself time, don't skip on the team, make sure that team is capable and aligned with your philosophical perspective. Awesome advice. What's one thing we might be surprised to know about you? I have no idea. I'm such a simple, straightforward person. I have no surprises in me. <laughs> Come on, you can make up something like GYF is really a band name. <laughs> no, my favorite job, because people think this would be my favorite job, and it's great. Um, but, and it's great, and I love the people I work with here as my teammates, and it's really inspiring to work with the business owners and business people we work with. But my favorite job was as a, as a whitewater river guide a long time ago. I'm no longer physically equipped to do that job, but my favorite job is not uh, being a, a partner in GYF. It was being a, a river guide a long time ago in the summer sun. Oh, amazing. Which river was that? The Guadalupe in Texas. How about that? That yeah. is Good, good trivia. I'm glad I asked you that question. <laughs> and as I love to ask everyone who comes on the show for inspiration, you've given us a lot of food for thought and words of wisdom, which I definitely appreciate. Do you have any favorite quotes that you'd like to share? I love quotes. I use them. I overuse them. And I'm going to use a long one because I think it's, it's, it's only a third of a page because I think it resonates with business owners. It's what I try and tell people who are advisors in coaching them to think like a business owner. And it's from Teddy Roosevelt from somewhere around 1910. It's called The Man in the Arena. And it reads as follows. Teddy said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. That's the difference between a business owner and somebody that always tells that business owner what they should have, could have, would have done. And we want to be empathetic and we want to be valuable advisors to business owners, but appreciating they're the ones in the trenches. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great quote. Thank you so much for sharing that. If people want to get in touch with you, Jeff, what's a great way to follow up? 
Best way is ford.gyf.com. As you mentioned, we've been around a while, so we have a three-character URL, ford.gyf.com, and you can see our bios at gyf.com as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Succession Stories today, and I really appreciate you. A lot of fun, Lori, and I appreciate it as well. Thanks. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.